Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, investment strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $208 billion in assets under management committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. Happy 2022 to all of our listeners. We took a break in January to delve more deeply into what we see as a year of transition for the U.S. economy, and we'll share some of those insights with you today. Thanks to Omicron, we're still coming to you from the virtual podcast booth, but signs are pointing to a true reopening and hopefully permanent return to at least a hybrid work environment in the months to come. Besides work schedules, entertainment viewing, and online shopping habits, the COVID-19 pandemic era has also had a meaningful impact on a company's bottom line. As the Fed begins to raise interest rates for the first time since late 2018, corporate earnings are in the spotlight. To assist me in discerning the likely profit trends ahead, and if they will be strong enough to carry the equity markets higher, I'm pleased to welcome back to the podcast, Chuck Harris, ClearBridge's Director of Research. Chuck covers a number of companies in the industrial sector, in addition to working closely with the firm's sector analysts, and will share his insights on both a macro and industry level in today's podcast, Can the Earnings Train Stay on Track? Chuck, welcome back to the virtual booth. I was sincerely hoping that we'd be in person, but I guess Omicron had a different viewpoint, but welcome back. Can't think of anywhere else I'd like to be, Jeff. I'm excited to be able to talk about this topic and really start to talk about what's going to happen in the future when we don't have to talk about COVID as the primary issue of the day. Well, let's knock on wood that this is hopefully the last disruptive wave of COVID and we'll be doing this live in about a year, but time will tell. But one thing I really want to talk about here is earnings. And this is going to be the most important question for the equity markets returns for 2022. A lot of people say that the market returns that we've seen over the last couple of years are because of elevated multiples, but history actually doesn't really bear that out. In fact, if you look at every recession that we've had over the last three, now, when the recessionary trough happens, yes, the first nine months of that new market cycle, most of the returns are driven by multiple expansion as investors tend to price in a much more robust earnings environment. But as you move into years two and three, which we currently are in, earnings drive over 100% of the market's returns. In fact, if you look back to last year, the S&P 500 had 33% earnings growth, yet the market only returned on a price perspective 27%. So multiples obviously contracted, and I think that we're going to see that similar dynamic this year, which means earnings are going to be a very important consideration. Whether or not earnings can, can keep up with the recent momentum is going to dictate the market's future. Now, to put it in perspective, over the last six quarters, not including this one, the average earnings surprise has been 17.5% compared to a long-term average of 4%. And yes, this earnings season has surprised at the upside, but instead of 17.5%, we're up to 6%. So things are starting to normalize. Now, I want to obviously talk about what's the expectations for earnings going forward. But in order to understand where we're going, I, I think it helps to set the stage on where we've come from. And Chuck, there's been a lot of reasons why earnings have been so robust. First off, you had strong consumption for consumers, obviously because of the shock and all stimulus that we saw out of Congress. And the S&P 500 tends to be much more goods oriented than, say, the Russell 2000. So it's disproportionately helped large caps. Also, 
Cost of capital has plummeted, one, because the Fed backstopped risks. That's really helped spreads come in. Um, so companies have been able to refinance, but also the Fed has doubled its balance sheet since the beginning of the pandemic, which has helped bring down long-term interest rates. And then last but not least, companies have managed their costs really well by being able to pass on these higher material costs to customers, but also being able to cut to the bone during the pandemic. So obviously really helping margins get to close to record levels where we stand right now. So those are kind of broad stroke reasons why we've seen such a robust earnings recovery. But Chuck, what I want to ask you, outside of kind of those broad strokes, why are we here right now? Why has this earnings recovery been so special? As you look at company results over the course of the past 12 to 18 months, it does help to think back to the great financial crisis where companies literally had to rewrite what the responses were going to be towards an uncertain or impossibly uncertain environment, which is not dissimilar in many respects to what we just have gone through. The ability of companies to manage their costs through the Great Recession, in fact, proved out very helpful in the past 18 to 24 months, where companies knew exactly where to go, how to change costs, change travel budgets, compensation expenses, people, furloughs, all sorts of other things that enabled them to really manage through a crisis in a way that they did not understand 20 years ago. So I, I think that the resilience of the business models has proven out really well. So when we talk about earnings, we should also talk about revenues, online sales, you know, new developments in financial services, where we brought a ton of small businesses online because online was the only place that they could do business. So there were a lot of changes there which generated significantly greater sales and earnings opportunities as well. You know, companies also discovered that they could pass through pricing, which they haven't done much of in 10 to 20 years. And that's also insulated you know, bottom line results against inflation as well. So there are a lot of different reasons why earnings have been more resilient than maybe one otherwise would have expected. So the question I have for you, Jeff, is in the piece that you always do on anatomy of a recession, um, it does compare earnings recoveries to the length of the economic cycle. Uh, does the speed of this earnings comeback concern you at all? Or are we seeing a pull forward in EPS growth? What do you think? Well, it's a fair question. And generally speaking, the faster that you run through the slack that was created by a recession, the quicker that you're going to run up on the natural speed limit that the economy can run. And as you move over that speed limit, it generally creates inflation and a much more hawkish Fed response. Obviously, we're seeing that right now with the, the Fed's pivot in December. And we're running through the slack here at an extraordinary pace. You can look at labor markets, right? Last year, you had an average job creation per month of around 550,000 jobs. I mean, this is literally unheard of. And we already have an unemployment rate at, at 4%, which is the Fed's estimate of long-term unemployment. So it's not a surprise that the Fed has now hit their employment mandate and now focusing on inflation. But looking at it from another vantage point, which you mentioned, Chuck, is how quickly you run through and you recover from an earnings perspective to the prior cycle's peak. It, it actually has a really strong relationship for how long of an expansion that you experience. So we've been spoiled over the last four decades. The last four expansions that we've had had an average of around 8.6 years. And the reason being is the slack wasn't being chewed through very quickly. So it allowed for a much longer recovery. And 
the earnings recoveries were, were a lot longer in modern history. But if you think about the fact that we're already at last cycle's peak in earnings, the closest analogy that we have are the two cycles that we saw in the 1970s. The average earnings recovery took about two and a half years for each of those cycles, but these were much shorter expansions. They lasted around 47 months apiece on average, or a little bit less than four years. So unfortunately, because of the speed of which we're recovering, I think that this is not going to be a, an expansion that's closer to a decade. I actually think that this is probably going to be an expansion that's four, five, or maybe six years. So I think we're going to be talking about the dreaded R word, recession, probably in 2024, but I, I'm thinking 2025 or 2026 altogether. But I think kind of circling back to earnings, and I, I talked about a couple of things there that I, I think are going to be really important to dictate the earnings trajectory that we're going to see this year are inflation, supply chain impacts. Are they going to be prevalent? Are we going to have a potential inventory recession because of the bullwick? Also, Fed policy is, is turning very tight at the moment. Chuck, kind of given these dynamics that are headwinds for earnings, what are your expectations? Do you think that we could hit consensus estimates or do you, do you think we may miss to the downside? I think the probability of, of significant upside is probably low, at least in the industrial world. And I think this is true in a lot of other industries as well. A lot of the uh, expectations for earnings growth are more back end loaded into the second half of the year predicated on the presumption of some easing of inflationary pressures. Back-end expectations are always dangerous. Maybe they materialize, maybe they don't. It's a long way between here and July or August. Most companies don't have the kind of visibility that you would like. So the market itself is, is more discounting those expectations because of the back-end loaded way that they are being presented. People just don't know. The large part of the investment community has not actually witnessed and experienced an inflationary cycle in their entire investing careers. And a lot of people don't know exactly how this is going to play out and how this is going to materialize. I think that most companies are being conservative in their guidance. So I think that the probability is they hit their numbers, maybe they miss a little bit. I think the probability of significant outperformance on earnings is likely to be low. That said, though, I think what you really also want to think about is thinking about this by verticals, because not every industry is impacted in the same way for the same reasons. Inflation has certain issues. This is primarily, and Jeff, you can refer to this as well. This has been a goods-related recovery. And so the demand for goods, for physical things, is significantly greater than we've ever experienced in terms of overall growth and what the average norm is in the economy. We could see as services pick back up again, whether it be people traveling, going out for lunches, dinners, and things like that, you could see a shift back. And as you see a shift back, those companies, those industries could be a lot stronger and we could get a real nice upside surprise there, even as more goods related businesses slow down a little bit, whether it be on the, maybe because consumer spending is not going to be exclusively on things. It could be on experiences and experiences as an example, or things that everybody was talking about three years ago and no one's had an experience for two years. Yeah, Chuck, I think you hit the nail on the head. Obviously, uh, we got some data here earlier in the week. Business inventories increased by 2.1% in December, strongest increase of inventories that we've seen since 1982. And the business inventory to sales ratio, which is something that we've been monitoring, uh, picked up the most that we've seen since the pandemic. And it's still low, but you're, you're starting to see a, a pretty rapid accumulation of inventory. So you could have the, a bullwhip effect or an inventory recession. 
and the back half of this year, which would certainly be a headwind to a lot of the goods producing sectors. That, and even though services is, is probably going to do quite well in this environment. Again, obviously a lot to be told on this story, but it's certainly a, a reason why you could see some bifurcation in the marketplace as, as things tend to normalize. But I, I want to take a step back here and I want to talk about this idea of transitory versus permanent. I, I know we're not allowed to say transitory anymore after Powell had retired it back in December. But in this year of transition, Chuck, what themes are you watching? You know, is there any impacts that were seen from COVID over the last couple of years that are going to be sustained as we hopefully knock on wood, have a much more sustained market environment or much more persistent economic backdrop as we put Omicron in, in the rear view? You know, I had a conversation with a number of the analysts in the department uh, over the course of the past week about businesses that are fundamentally different in 2023 than they were in 2019. And the two issues that were most mentioned were electric vehicles and transition to the cloud. In 2019, Tesla was not what Tesla is today. It was a cute new car for rich people and it was a nice concept. Uh, and was it ever gonna make money? Maybe yes, maybe no. Now electric vehicles are the future. It is not a question. It's just a matter of how we get from here to there. So electric vehicles are a big deal and all the infrastructure surrounding electric vehicles are a big deal and they'll become more and more prevalent in the conversation going forward. And transition to the cloud, I think what a lot of companies did come to realize and understand is work from home made cloud more important. The amount of data and the work that we do from home or anywhere is increasing. The requirements for managing more data, better data, more secure data continue to grow almost on an exponential fashion. And so everything associated with cloud transition and moving to the cloud from local enterprise, so from a company's closet, that is a permanent shift that is only going to continue to accelerate. Those would be the two biggest things that we heard, things that will change, that will become normal. Right now, as an example, financial institutions have virtually no credit losses. No one has ever seen this type of credit performance, at least in my experience, in forever. Those will normalize back to some number, but you're going to have credit as a headwind at some point over the next two years because credit losses are never zero on a permanent basis. Similarly in retail, with a lack of inventory, you've had very, very low promotional activity. Now most of the companies in retail are hoping that they're able to sustain that, but history would suggest that promotional activity always occurs as people end up with inventory and need to sell it through and take some share and do other things. So those are two areas where we would see real normalization where right now represents abnormal. And then you have two other verticals where we see permanent long-term change that's going to have massive investment ramifications, we believe, pretty much over the course of the next decade. Yeah. Some of the positive aspects of what you're talking about, the cloud, this transition that we're talking about is potentially higher productivity for companies, right? As they invest in automation and people work from home, productivity could be a, a really strong consequence. And we might see productivity growth instead of being the anemic 1% growth that we saw 
back during the last cycle, we could have productivity jump to maybe two or three percent, similar to what we saw in the 1990s, which obviously could help the bottom line of companies. But also, even if we have this high inflationary backdrop, it could offset some of that inflation and, and keep the Fed at bay and, and maybe prolong this economic cycle like we saw in the 1990s. But it does bring up an, an important question, Chuck, about inflation. Now, how durable is it? And people are talking about wage pressure, that you have the return of the Phillips curve and wage inflation is going to be out of control. And I, I certainly understand that viewpoint with the most recent wage growth coming in at 5.7%. But the reason why I'm not really all that concerned is I think that there's a lot more labor supply out there than that's being typically represented. First off, a lot of people that lost their federal unemployment benefits back in September, rapidly running out of that cash cushion. And if you're not going to have the pandemic to work with, I think a lot of those individuals will find themselves back into the labor market. Also, with some of the largest gains from wages accruing to the lower end of the pay spectrum, I think the 16 to 24-year-old age group could recover their participation rate back to what we saw in the pre-GFC era. And if that happens, another 2.2 million people will be coming into the workforce. Uh, and then also with work from home initiatives, I think a lot of these people that have left the working environment over the last couple of days because of disabilities will find themselves back in the labor market. So I think one of these things that people are concerned with is wage growth. I think wage growth actually moves down over the next couple of years, which will be another reason to tamp down your expectations for inflation will ultimately be at as we get to a more normalized environment. Now, Chuck, we've obviously talked a little bit about inflation, and obviously this is going to be something that we're going to be talking about for quite some time, but there's clearly going to be areas that are beneficiaries of higher inflation and areas that are going to face headwinds because of inflation. So can you talk about some of the areas of opportunity in the environment that we have with us right now? Well, I think that there are some industries where inflation is less of a material issue. They may have other problems. But if you look at, let's say, drug manufacturers, not really an inflation issue. There's a pricing issue. There's a demand issue. There's a growth issue, but it's not inflationary. Software is another one and cloud where you don't just have material inflation as an issue. It just isn't material. Industrials, you do have inflation. Transportation, they're getting massive pricing and massive labor cost changes. That's where issues are as well. So I, I think you have to be very discriminating as to how we think about inflation. Inflation isn't equal across the marketplace. And I think ultimately, we're going to end up spending a lot of time over the next three to six months is discussing permanence versus transitory inflation rates. And then also, as we start thinking about 2023, What's the growth rates going to look like on the top line? Because the cost issues are probably going to start to recede sometime middle of the year. Now, Chuck, you mentioned revenue growth, and we had a really interesting conversation on our pre-call. And I, I really want to dive into this because obviously profit margins are close to all-time highs, 12.5% in the third quarter. We're a little bit below that. But if you look at consensus estimates over the course of 2022, we're expected to get back to to all-time highs. And revenue growth is expected to reign really healthy this year. But in our conversation, you mentioned that revenue growth, it really isn't as healthy as it looks to be on the surface. And I wanted you to maybe elaborate a little bit on that, that thought. You know, I can speak most clearly about industrials in particular, where 
we talk about strong economic growth, talk about strong revenue growth, but the composition of revenues has become very different because of pricing, which we haven't really seen in 20 years, maybe 30 years. So I, I know one or two companies, as an example, that would post 10% top line growth, but 8.5% of that or 9% of that is pricing and 1% of that is volume. So the actual demand characteristics are not nearly as strong as the revenues are. Is that really demand destruction? Is that product availability? Is that things have slowed down in terms of progress? There feels like there's a lot of pent up volume demand that exists out there, but customers are not getting the products they need in the time that they need it, in the sequence that they need it, to be able to execute on what they're trying to achieve. So I think you're still going to see a lot of erratic change in that that volume growth may go from 1% to 4% as products become available. And then it might go up to 6% and then may go normalized back down to 3%. And what's actually real and normal versus just catch up is going to be hard to determine. And I think we're going to see a lot of that over the course of the next six to 12 months. Well, I, obviously the key question is if they don't have it now, is that just a permanently missed opportunity as things tend to normalize over this year? Obviously we're, we don't know that at this point, but certainly going to find that out over the next 12 months. Well, you know, Jeff, if you've dug the foundation for a building, the building's going up. So <laughs> it's just a matter of when it gets completed. Valid statement, valid observation, Jack. One other thing I wanted to ask you that I think is probably on a lot of people's minds right now is this idea between emerging growth or what I would call baby fang, companies that have no real clear path to profitability anytime soon, anytime over the next three to five years versus your more traditional growth players out there. You know, I'll make just for argument's sake for regular fang, which obviously are traditional growth companies with established business models. Rates have been going up. You've obviously seen this impact the, the valuations of these pre-profit companies, but you know, in, in this type of environment, what do you expect going forward? You obviously, you've had some distortions, but why is this happening? I think it's important, first of all, to recognize that there is always room in the market for truly value-added disruptive technology or growth companies. They've existed historically, they exist yesterday, they will exist today, and they will exist tomorrow. And there will always be investors willing to invest in those companies. That's point one. That being said, the valuation mechanism of a pre-profit business presumes a size of market. It presumes a margin. It has an awful lot of presumptions beyond those two things that investors need to be willing to underwrite. And I think that what happens in a rising interest rate environment, the risk factor associated with those presumptions simply becomes greater. And then the math itself literally then generates a lower valuation number because the risk presumption or the risk hurdles are higher. I think that what you'll end up seeing over the course of the next six months is you'll see fewer companies coming public their owners and or sponsors have had higher expectations for value than the market currently is willing to provide. And there needs to be a reset of expectations of what companies are worth. That doesn't mean there aren't some very, very good baby fangs that exist out there. But I think that it's just a matter of what the investment community's willingness to accept risk at these interest rate levels are. 
it's almost mathematical in some respects, Jeff. Well, certainly seen a derating here uh, fairly aggressively. I'm, I'm sure, as we saw at the dot-com bubble, going to present some really good long-term opportunities uh, if you, you're able to discern which are the, the right business models in this environment. In fairness, I do think, unlike the dot-com bubble, you know, we don't have any sock puppets being worth a billion dollars anymore. So you know, there are a lot of really decent businesses that have just been maybe overhyped, for lack of a better word. <laughs> very, very good analogy. Well, Chuck, we're coming up on time here. I really appreciate having you in the booth here. I just want to ask you one last question. Any concluding thoughts on the earnings environment that we're going to see this year uh, for investors? I am, I am not a big fan of discussing concepts of we're margin peak. We've been discussing peak margins now in many respects for my entire career, and that's over 30 years at this point. Margins are at peak levels. There's still the peak levels. There are more peak levels. Margins get better because companies learn how to manage their costs better. They get to grow their business and they get to generate productivity. That's why margins continue to go higher. Maybe it's only at 20 basis points a year. Some years it's at 50 basis points a year. Some years it's at higher levels even than that. But there is no reason to say just because margins are at peak levels that they're at a ceiling, a hard ceiling. Because companies figure out how to do things better and smarter every day, all the time. We know that the first quarter is going to be challenging, particularly on a year-over-year comp basis, because real inflationary pressures started in the second quarter and built into the third and fourth quarters last year. And so this year, many companies are facing probably their stiffest cost comparisons of the year. That's good. So it's going to be a tough start to the year in the first quarter. The fourth quarter from a cost perspective is likely to be the easiest comparison of the year and companies are going to be able to have probably priced against those costs more effectively than they might be able to do right now. So all else being equal, I would assume that the earnings risks are gonna be greatest in the first quarter. They're probably gonna be the easiest in the fourth quarter. And much of what we're hoping for now is really going to be Demand. If demand, if this economy remains relatively okay, I think the demand numbers will be fine. If the demand numbers are fine, then I think you're going to have okay earnings for the year. As has mentioned, I think it's important just to keep a long-term perspective that in a year of transition, whether it was 1994 or 2011, these tend to be years there. The market doesn't have its long-term average returns, but it obviously sets the stage for some better returns as you move into the middle innings of a of a longer economic cycle. Chuck, thank you again so much for joining me here in the booth. I, I know I learned a lot and I know our listeners did too. So I, I really appreciate your insight. Jeff, it was a pleasure being here and thanks very much for inviting me. And thank you everybody for joining this podcast. We're gonna be doing monthly podcasts through the year here. So we hope that you join us on future updates. And as always, we hope that you have a safe and happy February and hope to have you back here in March. Take care. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of February 16th, 2022, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. 
Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.